Welcome to Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. I'm Kate Joyner. In 2018, we look forward to sharing with you listeners some of the amazing talent and knowledge contained right across our QUT community. Today in the spotlight is Professor Michael Milford, Chief Investigator in the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision at QUT. So I must admit this morning I tried to put myself into a very calm and zen space in anticipation of this conversation because Michael's research interests in robotics are broad and they're fascinating and additionally I think he probably has enough energy to light up our major city. Uh, he has a lot of certainly an entrepreneurial energy for engaging students in the wonder of maths. I knew I'd have to bring my A game in order to keep up. So here's my deep breath, my deep breath and here goes. So welcome Michael. Hi, how you going? Good. Okay, so I was just saying Michael's pretty good, um, does a lot of media, so he's good at translating some of our more uh, technical enterprises of the university, and his particular speciality is robotic vision. So Michael, take it away. Tell us about robotic vision and what its real-world applications are. Oh, no pressure with all this talk about A-game. Sure. <laughs> yeah. so, so most people know about robots. Robots are these uh, things that are not yet all around us, but are in movies and in sci-fi, and you hear about them on the news. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we're working on here at QT is robotic vision. So this is equipping robots with the ability to see the world around them and understand the world, hopefully, as well as we do as humans, so that they can do useful things for us useful things. So what could I potentially ask a robot to do around the house in maybe, what, 10 years? So the dream for all the uh, lazy roboticists, and a lot of the advances will come from lazy roboticists who want to stop themselves having to do chores. The, the dream in 10 years' time will be a fairly capable household robot that can load the dishwasher, do the laundry, sweep the floors, perhaps even clean up after your kids. Um, and that's not beyond the realms of possibility. It might cost a bit, uh, but that would be really cool. That would, I like the unpacking the dishwasher and packing the dishwasher. So that there would be one, I can imagine there'd be an algorithm for dishwasher packing because you know, everyone has their own algorithm about how to pack a dishwasher. <laughs> so there'd be one definitive, most efficient dishwashing packing. Yeah, what, what, one of the human factors for these robots actually being acceptable will be you'll have to be able to train the robot to do it the way that you do it in your own household. So that will be one of the many oh, things built So there would be them. an aspect of, of learning machine Yeah, learning yeah. Each household does things a different way and the ah, robot has to adapt. Okay. I thought there'd be one sort of best fit algorithm. There might be one best fit algorithm, but I think the ones which are commercially successful will be the ones like, like smartphones, like all other technology that you can customise to what you want. So your centre, um, the Centre for Robotic Vision, what, what are, its, are its current um, research projects that you've got on the go right now? So it's a, it's a really large centre, QT is the lead, but there's three other universities around Australia, so a lot of people working on, on various projects. I guess uh, we're in the second half of the centre now, so we're really moving further into this sort of applied research and translational research stage. So we're working with lots of industry partners in agriculture, in mining and other areas as well as government to translate some of the research that we've been doing into actual commercial applications uh, and also doing a lot of engagement with these corporate and government partners around how all these new technologies are going to affect their business models, what the disruption might be, what are some of the opportunities on the positive side uh, and that's really a big part of the remit of the centre as well as education and engagement. 
So Michael was just saying he's been working with, um, obviously in Queensland, Department of Transport and Main Roads, but imagine every state government department around Australia and the world are sort of thinking about the impacts on cities. Um, and we had a conversation, you know, recently about um, livable cities and, and technology um, and so forth. So what, what kind of, do you think that the government, uh, state, I, I suppose cities and transport is actually happens at all levels, doesn't it? It happens at local levels and state level as well as federal roads, but do you think we're actually coming to grips with how um, autonomous vehicles um, uh, and other kinds of applications are going to affect the form and shape um, of our cities? So everyone is, is now on the ball, which is great, and governments and, and pretty much every stakeholder in society is really actively investigating what's this whole autonomous vehicles thing, what's this whole intelligent transport thing. So that's, that's really great and that's a positive. The big risk for everyone uh, is that there's still massive uncertainty about what this technology will or won't look like in five years, let alone 10 or 15 years. Yeah, there are levels, aren't there? There are different yeah, levels of autonomy. Mm. There's different models where people own cars or don't own cars. Um, no one really knows, despite what some experts like myself would like to say, no one really knows what is actually going to happen. And this is really hard, especially for people like government or infrastructure investors, because they're making 20 or 30 year bets um, and the technology is advancing much more quickly than that time cycle. So we're sort of trying to work with these um, partners to help them, I guess, hedge their bets a little bit so they can better prepare for a range of possible outcomes. Yeah, so scenarios uh, rather than um, sort of a definitive... Um, yeah. yeah, giving them a, a the playbook, brain. so to speak, so that mm. as the technology unfolds in front of their eyes, they're prepared, they're empowered to respond to those changes. Mm. So what would be the most, again, you know, we say we don't know, but um, for Brisbane, what would be the most, the scenario that you would put smart money on in terms of uh, that, uh, for example, where you might optimally live because of, you know, the way transport might evolve? Because you'd have to put your own, you know, um, thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. It, it really came home. This will sound very narcissistic, but it really came home the other day. Like My wife and I have been sort of half-heartedly house shopping for a while for a, for a new house. And we were looking at two main options. One was to go out to the outskirts of the city where you can get a much bigger house and yeah. big block of land. Uh, and one was to go to a much smaller block, a nice little modern house uh, in the inner city. Uh, and there's obviously price implications of doing both of those things. And geography really matters at the moment for house values, right? So if autonomous cars become effective and widespread, the whole concept of uh, an inner city home being more valuable than an outer city home, that may change. It may become more uh, unequal or it may become more equal. Uh, and you can imagine the whole property market for one just completely changing if you do get widespread intelligent transport. And that, that was actually like I was freaking out a little bit because a house is the biggest investment most people make during their lives. Uh, and this, this could all happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Fabulous. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought of it that way. So that if you can um, commute, so to speak, to your work um, easily from, you know, Ipswich, Middle Park into, into Brisbane, then maybe Ipswich property will start being, yeah. uh, uh, look like a good bet. Yep, and, and th there's a few major aspects to it. The, the first is that you might be able to sleep in your car or you might be able to do some work. 
So um, that will affect uh, how you think about commuting. Uh, the second thing is if the most optimistic scenarios play out, there'll be a lot fewer cars on the road. These cars may be so good, it's unlikely, but may be so good that they can go a lot faster. So you, commute, you may actually spend less time in your car even though you're commuting a longer distance and there may be far less traffic. That's sort of one of the more optimistic scenarios, but it would have huge effects if it came true. It would. There was a piece in the conversation, I think, just yesterday about um, summer. Did you see that? Some yeah, I was the, just reading it this morning. It, yeah, so that it could be that petrol will become much cheaper, perversely, so that we may well drive a lot more, you know, and then that would be, that would have... Um, so, yeah, it's hard to know what the unintended consequences would yeah. be. And also they were thinking perhaps uh, we won't need public transport as much, you know, if we can all just go point to point. Um, yeah, so one of the problems, and this is something government I think is increasingly aware of, is until the actual geographical layout of the city changes, we'll still have the sort of typical model where a lot of people work in the city or near the city and commute in from further out. And a lot of the studies have shown that if self-driving cars are really good, they'll meet maybe 50% of your demand, but then you'll still need a mass transit system to meet peak demand that mass transit system will lose a lot of its revenue because people aren't using it the other times. Mm. Uh, so government or whoever's supporting it will be in dire straits. So we've got to make sure we anticipate this so that, for example, corporates don't come in, set up a highly profitable system which only caters to 50% of demand uh, and lets the public transport system sort of decay because it's been neglected. Mm. So obviously the tools of scenario planning are going to have uh, be very useful uh, in this space um, and, and just getting a, a, you know, a wide range of expertise um, in the room. Yeah. yeah, and also canvassing what's happening overseas. So it, it's quite likely this may happen first in other places. It's the same as, I guess, when telecommunications rolled out in some developing countries, they sort of partially went straight to sort of mobile infrastructure. Um, so a, new, a relatively new city built from scratch um, may go straight to an infrastructure that supports autonomous vehicles or intelligent transport. Mm. Wow, there's, yeah, there's a, oh, I just get totally fascinated. So I was saying that's why I have to have a Zen <laughs> moment in the morning to kind of get my head across these kind of issues. But QUT is engaged in a range of sort of robotic questions. Robotic vision is one. Sure, so robotic vision is really the methodology or the, the technology that underpins almost all of the stuff that are engaged with at QUT. Uh, we do a lot of stuff in agricultural robotics, so there's a, a fairly good capability in robots that do things like um, automatic weeding on a farm or automatic uh, fruit or vegetable picking. So we have a really good capsicum picking robot called Harvey, uh, which is really cool. And some of that work, I think, is being commercialised at the moment. Uh, we're increasingly doing work with the mining industry. We have a lot of robots doing environmental monitoring. Uh, tracking koalas, tracking Great Barrier Reef, those sort of things. Mm. Uh, medical robotics as well, and also sort of social robotics. There's a collaboration between QT, Queensland Government and SoftBank, which is sort of a huge international company in robotics, uh, doing things like uh, interactive uh, pepper robots. And pepper robots, I'm not sure if you've seen them, are these really amazing yeah. looking humanoid robots. Pepper, yeah, pepper. Yeah, Queensland has a lot of them now. So oh, you see yeah. them in banks, you see them at transport centres, you see them in universities. Ah, and what, what can I ask Pepper to do? You can ask Pepper to, it depends which one you're talking to, to of course, guess, but you can yeah. ask Pepper to show yourself around. You can maybe have a simple conversation with it. Um, Pepper may be able to do a little performance for you as well at Robotronica uh, this last year, which is an event, robotics event at QUT. Uh, Pepper did a little show for, I think, about a thousand people over the course of a day, and that was really cool. Mm, entertaining pepper. <laughs> yeah, and very, very much they've got the design right because people are instantly captive. So it's got eyes, it can blink at you. 
Uh, people are instantly captivated by it. Yeah, Robotronica, I think, is bi, is it biannual or biannual? I always yeah, forget. It's, 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 every two, it's every two years. Every two. So there'll we be had one, one last year, there should we? be one next year, and we hope we'll get 20,000 plus people along. Uh, and there's a huge range of robotics displays, games, education. Uh, it's a really great day. Yeah, so th this again, though, was, um, we were talking about the cube in our last um, ep episode of um, Exec Insights. So all initiatives um, to bring the broader um, community into the wonder of STEM, so all sorts of initiatives in that regard. So the, one thing that always comes into a discussion about robotics is its potential to uh, affect uh, the workforce and work more generally. Well, how do you, what is your take when you're asked about what do you think the impact will be on jobs and employment? Sure, so it, this is a very tough, multifaceted question, which is very much now, thank, thank goodness, at the forefront of, I think, most people's minds. I think the first thing is awareness so that we don't go running away from ghosts or demons that don't actually exist. So being aware of what the technology is currently actually good at and what it's not good at so we don't um, sort of get misled by hype or propaganda on either side of the argument. It will definitely have some impact on jobs. I think that's already happening. Uh, you already see it in things which don't actually involve physical robots. So things like business process automation, now robotic process automation. Uh, that's already starting to have effect on employment. Uh, and the more proactive organisations uh, we work with, for example, the Motor Trades Association of Queensland, which will be very much affected by things like uh, autonomous cars, are very much looking at how they can reskill, uh, retool and future-proof their workforces and their new students so that despite a little bit of uncertainty about what will happen, they'll be best prepared to sort of segue into new opportunities in employment. Um, and that will probably happen multiple times over their careers. Everyone talks about the average tenure in a job or role becoming shorter and shorter, um, and that's definitely uh, going to be a big issue. Yes, so that you supplied me with a little bit of question uh, here about um, uh, that you wanted to be asked, not so much wanted, but you had a picture of a utopian um, technology for the future, and you're also um, a dystopian. Um, so when we think of dystopian futures, I suppose, regarding technology, we sort of have all those black mirror kind of scenarios, don't we? We're sometimes often about surveillance, um, often about how it will change all kinds of um, social norms and behaviours like dating and uh, the potential for algorithms just to um, uh, inform all aspects of our work. So what is your dystopian um, future, Michael Milford. Yeah. So the one about you that you worry about for your, for your kids' sake. I think. So I definitely don't worry about the dystopian. I'm a big uh, fan of the Terminator film series, oh. uh, but I definitely don't worry about that because although maybe in the long term that might be a possibility, I think there are other society changing things that might happen before that. So you want to worry about the problems that are going to be first, right? Mm. Um, and I think the big problem which everyone is grappling with right now is if automation, AI and robotics um, displaces even a small fraction of the workforce, so even if it's 10 or 20%, and if we don't set up to either generate enough new opportunities that we can't really predict exactly what they'll be now, uh, or alternative gainful modes of employment uh, for those who are affected or re-education, uh, even just having a small fraction of the workforce sort of with nothing to do can be incredibly socially destructive. Uh, and there's a lot of very uh, good theory and studies written on like welfare states and how do you transition to this scientific and artistic utopian future uh, in a way that's sort of stable. 
Uh, and that's all still being worked out, I think. And, and we still don't know the effect to which AI and automation will actually displace jobs and where it will displace jobs first. No, because of emergence. We can't know how different things you know, feed into each other in a, in a complex system. And, and what's yeah. important, I think, is a lot of the initial, I guess, myths about where they might displace jobs first are going away. So I think early on, people just assume that blue-collar jobs would go first and white-collar jobs would go second. Uh, but that's definitely not true. So as a roboticist, making a robot that could do what a plumber does is like incredibly hard. That, that is very unlikely to happen in any near future. But uh, accountants, low-level lawyers, um, those are areas which are more likely to be affected by disruption. I'm talking to um, a big CPA meeting on Monday about this, actually. Uh, so those are the sort of areas where if it happens, it will happen first. Uh, yeah, interesting. No, not, not the, the way that we had initially um, anticipated. Though imagine the, um, the kind of work that you're doing uh, that robotics plays into the agriculture space is probably displacing a lot of sort of more manual um, agriculture, uh, farming kind of work. Yeah, so in, in agriculture and mining, a lot of the work that we're doing is improving systems that are already highly automated. So they're already oh, autonomous okay. vehicles yeah. in mining, for example, and we're trying to make them better or cheaper or more flexible. So you're not actually directly displacing anyone. Uh, in agriculture, and, and I'm not an expert by any means on this, but my understanding is that in our country and also some other countries, uh, people are struggling to actually get sufficient labour. I know I think in Singapore that's also a problem. They're struggling to get enough people to work. So in some cases, uh, it's a practicality rather than necessarily just a cost-saving exercise. So your interest in artificial intelligence has an interesting application that you told me about, which is that... So <laughs> I love this because it's such, it's such the way that people in technology, professors in technology and just academics like us, nerdy people in general, think about the world. So you had to buy an engagement ring recently. So congratulations. How recently? Thanks. That, no, that was actually quite a while ago. Now. It was quite yeah, a while yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you had to go through the painful process of learning what makes an appropriate engagement ring. But... Uh, but technology stepped in. Have I got that story right? Yeah, pretty much. So, so I didn't want to get ripped off. So I did my research like most people do. I wanted to make sure I got a, a good ring for my, my wife and, and made sure that it was a good value uh, purchase. And I thought, oh, all this wasted uh, research. Like I'm never going to, hopefully I'm never going to use this again. Uh, so I thought, well, I should try and share this knowledge. And I thought, well, what would be a cool way to share? Well, I'll write a, a sort of artificial intelligent bot uh, that can write an entire web page on how to go about buying a diamond ring and how to assess diamonds and all that sort of stuff. So that was a fun technological challenge. It was also interesting, I guess, in light of what we've been discussing in terms of looking at the mechanics of how you would design something that can do low-level sort of marketing and sales and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it wasn't. Too, I'm not a particularly good coder, but it wasn't that hard to do. Uh, and then you could create a website, you can monetize it, you could earn all, you can, and you can earn a lot of money from doing things like that. Yes, but where's the romance, Michael? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my wife is very understanding. You get dragged into a shop and, and your potential wife just points to one and that's the, that's the way that you do it. <laughs> Clearly not. I'm surprised you had that much input into it, actually. Uh, well, no, I was guided, guided heavily, yeah. but I wanted to do my research as yeah. well. Well, well done, yeah. At, um, you can use it again when you buy something nice for the 10-year anniversary, Michael. Ah, yeah, well, that's coming up soon, so... Yeah. So, Michael, you also have a, a side project, and again, in terms of 
engaging students with the wonder of maths in an engaging way. So you have your product, Math Thrills. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is a, it's a little startup company uh, that I run. It's got some uh, QT Blue Box investment in it. And the overall premise of this startup is essentially that we don't like to do anything that we don't have to do, right? So, for example, dieting is a pain because it's not something we would normally do, it's a special thing that we do. And, and I guess my attitude about that is the same for education. So doing homework, doing special tutorials and stuff like that, a lot of people do it, it's, it's how we learn currently, but it's a pain. It'd be much nicer if we could get a lot of our education for free through the entertainment that we consume every day. So that's really what Math Thrills is all about. So we use and also create sort of mass market entertainment, and then we stealthily embed it full of STEM education. So we have a young adult novel, and it's filled very stealthily with key mathematical concepts, uh, so that as you read it, you get exposed to those concepts as well. And then we accompany that with all this sort of explicitly educational uh, material. We also write things like a movie review series on science and maths in big Hollywood blockbusters. So that's a really lot of fun. So I get to go along to the preview sessions of these movies uh, and get oh, to write about... Oh, red carpet moments. Yeah, red yeah. carpet moments and, and get to write about the science and maths. And that's, that's really hit a nerve too. Uh, a lot of people, um, we've had a lot of good feedback about that. Um, a lot of people like sort of the idea of just for fun. Uh, sort of looking behind what's actually happening in the movie. Well, science and technology and maths is just way more engaging than it used to be, certainly when I was at high school. So, Michael, this is a question I ask all our QUT Exec Insights guests. Um, we finish with always, what are you reading at the moment? And we say, it doesn't have to be related to your discipline. I, I, outside of work, I hate reading anything related to my, my discipline because I get so much of it at work. So I don't read a lot now, but at the moment I'm very slowly making my way through a book called, uh, I think, in Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, of course. We love that book here in the, um, in the graduate school. Yeah, yeah, so that's... that's Daniel Kahneman. And yeah, then there's the Michael Lewis book about how they... The, the partnership um, among Tversky and Kahneman, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's struck home or struck a chord in a number of ways. So I really like the theme in the book of, I think people over attribute events and outcomes to causality where a lot of it is not luck, but just random variation. Uh, I think in telling people about all this technology that's coming in robotics, to make it accessible, we try and spin a sort of cohesive narrative around how it's unfolded because it does help people get grips on it. But at the same time, there's limits to how useful telling a coherent story about these sort of things are because a lot of it is a bit of sort of random variation and you don't know what's actually going to happen. Uh, so that's really um, struck a chord, I think, with how we conduct our business on a daily basis. It's a great book. Yeah, highly recommended. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that we had the chance for you to come in and share. It's obviously an area in which QUT is investing heavily uh, for the benefit of the community. And so thanks for translating it so beautifully for us. Michael Milford. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.